back to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, and today's episode will be our themes episode. So we've looked back at the divisive politics in the world, really, at this current place and time, and how screwed up that is, how the political discussion is, it's just poisonous. And not only is it unproductive, but also there's a lot that's left out of the discussion, a lot that doesn't get brought up and doesn't get talked about. And most of this has to do with things that have gone on in the past and things that are going on behind the scenes. And so that's the kind of political aspect of it. Then we move to economics and the money side. And we saw that really everything in the economy seems to be rigged right now towards the banks and governments and the elite classes and the wealthy. And that's not ideal for us common people, but that's the situation we're in right now. And then moving to the education side, our previous episode directly prior to this one, we talked about how there really is this education for the masses that is different than an ideal, classically liberal idea of an education, and that there are aspects of education that the elite and the wealthy are getting that the common people in the public school system is not providing, and that is a problem. Now, after this episode, we're going to get into corruption and conspiracy, and so that's really going to get into some, the next episode will be the secret society that Cecil Rhodes started up, and the man that was responsible for the De Beers Diamond Company and the Rhodes Scholarship and things like this. And you'll get to hear the story of that. And that's very interesting. And that will lead us to the Council on Foreign Relations eventually. And then the next three episodes will be first corruption and conspiracy in government, then in money, and then in education. And all these have been extremely interesting as I go in and all this research there has been a lot of research. It gets a little crazy. But before we get to that, and in order to wrap up our previous three episodes, we have to talk about where these ideas come from. Where did this ideology come from of having the elite class and having the common masses and separating them and steering societies in certain ways through certain methods? Where did all this come from? And so that's where our episode today will take us. Today is an interesting one. I'm going to go over many, I should have counted them, I don't know how many, but many books that have been extremely influential on society from 1532 is the earliest one, all the way down to 1963. And they'll cover all different kinds of topics. I'm not going to go into detail about any of them, but I'm going to talk about some of the concepts that come out of them. And they are concepts that these authors, as well as others in their times, were really putting out there. And these were ideas and concepts and ideologies that were getting eaten up by those that were elite and that were wealthy and that were running governments and running the world. And they really made a big impact. And so this is where these ideas come from. And if not the actual source, they are a representation of that that was very influential and still is very influential. 
So that's what we're doing today. I was going to start off with Plato's Republic, and that was back in roughly 380 BC. However, when I really dug into that, I actually just finished reading Plato's Republic in its entirety, and that deserves an episode all on its own. And it's really, it's really crazy how Plato's Republic actually covers every single one of the topics that I'm going to be talking about. And this was written in 380 BC. This is a long time ago. These ideas are not new, is my point. I must give the caveat that I have not read every one of these books in their entirety. I have read some. Others I have read summaries of. Others I have read sections of. Uh, A lot of this has come from a book that I read that was called 10 Books That Screwed Up the World. And that one had at least 10 books. And I picked many of those, but not all of them, and added many more. And so... This is just a compilation of ideas. It is not a book summary and book review of all these different books. So I'm just going to pull out some of the highlights of the ideologies and ideas that came out of these books and that really made an impact on people, especially those that were in power and that were in the elite and wealthy circles. So the first one is Machiavelli, the book The Prince in 1532. Now, Machiavelli was a very interesting character. He was an advisor to the rich and powerful and heads of state. And at the time that the prince came out, he was trying to get in with a new, very wealthy, very powerful family. He wrote The Prince, and it kind of talks about how to rule successfully. Now, the interesting thing about this was that it was not a very moral book. He did not have very many ethical ideas. His idea was that reigning successfully and having power and success is very different and totally separate from morality and being ethical in your behavior, but rather you were to act ruthlessly and that success is what is good, not morality. But what you do need to do is feign goodness and you need to pretend that you are religious and that you are looking out for the people, and that you're a common person. But in reality, that's not how you should act. You should act for success. Because if you really acted morally and for the good of everybody, then you probably wouldn't be very successful. People would stab you in the back. You'd be betrayed. You'd be misled. And this is not going to go well for you, and therefore it will not go well for whatever territory you're governing over and that you're in power over. And so instead, you are to pretend like you are good, pretend like you are a good religious man, and that you bow to the will and the morals of God. And in reality, you're just doing whatever you have to, ruthlessly stomping on people, trampling them, stabbing them in the back, all this kind of stuff in order to succeed, in order to gain more power, more control. And that's what you should do. And that's how you should operate. And that was the prince. A few quotes from Machiavelli. We have, Everyone sees what you appear to be. Few experience what you really are. And then, It is much safer to be feared than loved, because love is preserved by the link of obligation, which, owing to the baseness of men, is broken at every opportunity for their advantage. 
but fear preserves you by a dread of punishment which never fails. He also said, never attempt to win by force what can be won by deception. Moving ahead a few years, 1536, you have John Calvin, and he was a Christian religious man, and he wrote Institutes of the Christian Religion. And again, this is one of his books, like all these authors that I picked out, but this one, he specifically does talk about predestination, which is what Calvin is specifically known for. You have the people called Calvinists that are people that follow this specific doctrine of Christianity. And predestination is basically just that God has ordained what will happen to all of us, to the world. And all of this is basically written in stone. He knows the future. He's decided it. And certain people have been chosen. There are a certain elect. And these elect have been chosen to basically go to heaven and that pretty much whatever they do, it does not really have any effect on this because they are predestined. They have already been chosen. They are already a part of the elect. Everybody else is not. And so this elect is actually a few elect. It's more like an elite group of people, which should sound familiar. And so the idea here is that if you're not one of the elect, then it doesn't matter what you do, you are not going to ever be part of the elect. You're never going to be chosen. You're never going to go to heaven no matter what you do. And the same applies to those that are elect. No matter what you do, you're still going to go to heaven. You are still one of the elect. And this brings up the idea of justified sinning, where maybe there's something that you think is best for the good of society, but it's very immoral and it's very against your Christian doctrines, but you are one of the elect. So no matter what you do, you're going to heaven anyway. And so we can kind of get around the issue of morality here. And this is not what John Calvin was specifically preaching, but this is what this idea of predestination and the elect led to naturally that, of course, if you're going to have a select group that are elect in a select group, basically everybody else, the masses that are not, then of course, this is going to lead to the idea of no matter what I do, I can get away with it kind of a thing. And this is an idea that was picked up on the religious side. John Calvin wrote, God preordained for his own glory and the display of his attributes of mercy and justice, a part of the human race without any merit of their own, to eternal salvation, and another part, in just punishment of their sin, to eternal damnation. Moving one year ahead, oh, 101 years ahead, sorry, this is in 1637, there was Descartes, and he wrote the book Discourse on Method. Now, what he talked about was mainly subjectivism, and his ideas were more philosophical, he talked about how things are and exist because I think them, and that is why they exist and how they exist. If I didn't think them, then they wouldn't exist. And so the way he goes about this is that anything that has any doubt associated with it, then it can be discarded. So if I maybe have doubt that the sun is a big ball of gas up in the sky, you know, I think it is, I'm pretty sure it is, but there's a slight amount of doubt, then I can't count that. I got to, to discard that, and that's not absolutely real and absolute truth. So 
of course, you get to the point where basically nothing is absolutely true and nothing is really real. And all you can get is that I am real because I think. And thinking is what makes it real. And so I think, and I have no doubt that I think, there is no doubt that I am thinking right now because if I wasn't thinking, I wouldn't even be able to think this line of thought. And so, therefore, I am. I think, therefore, I am. I'm sure you've heard that before. And so, that is the idea, that it's all subjectivism, there is no absolute truth, there is doubt in everything, and basically we discard everything, and we are the only things that are actually true and that actually matter. Descartes said, and I quote, I suppose, therefore, that all things I see are illusions. I believe that nothing has ever existed of everything my lying memory tells me. I think I have no senses. I believe that body, shape, extension, motion, location are functions. What is there, then, that can be taken as true? Perhaps only this one thing, that nothing at all is certain. He later said, Doubt is the origin of wisdom. And then also, At last I will devote myself sincerely and without reservation to the general demolition of my opinions. Moving on. 1651 was the date of Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. This was one of the most influential books on this list, and he talked about many things, mainly that good and evil are not the way we have thought them prior. They are not the religious idea of good and evil, but rather they can be narrowed down to simply pleasure and pain. So if something brings pleasure, then it is good. If something brings pain, then it is bad. And that is really all it comes down to. So your desires are your rights. You have a right to anything that you have a desire for. And you can see this might cause some problems here. Um, The other thing is that the natural state of man is pursuit of this over others. And so you are pursuing your pleasure over other people. And, of course, they're going to be pursuing their pleasure and your pleasure and their pleasure may conflict. And so, yeah, the state of man, the natural state of man is not really ideal. And this is the situation that basically anything you desire, anything that brings you pleasure, anything that you want, this is good. And anything that brings you pain, anything that's bad, this is evil. And that's how he defined good and evil. That is his morality. Hobbes wrote, The condition of man is a condition of war of everyone against everyone. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. When all the world is overcharged with inhabitants, then the last remedy of all is war, which provideth for every man by victory or death. And then also, the universe, the whole mass of things that are, is corporeal, that is to say, body, and hath the dimension of magnitude, length, breadth, and depth. Every part of the universe is body, and that which is not body is no part of the universe. And because the universe is all, that which is no part of it is nothing, and consequently nowhere. Then, moving up 100 years again, We have Discourse on Inequality Among Men. It's actually the Discourse on Origins and Foundations of Inequality Among Men for the full title. 
And this is Jean Jacques Rousseau. Jean Jacques Rousseau, I think, is how you pronounce that. I do not know, so I apologize. But Rousseau, he wrote the Discourse on Inequality, to make it short. And his ideas were that natural man was actually free, that that was the natural state of man, and it was very little conflict that existed because there was no property. Men didn't have property. Men, and I say men in the sense of human beings, did not have property. They did not have family. There was no conflict because they didn't have these things. And so everybody was peaceful and happy and society wasn't very advanced. Civilizations did not advance because there was no pursuit of that, but at least everybody was free. Everybody was happy. This is the ideal. And government, when it came up, was basically just the elite taking control over the masses. It was the haves taking control over the have-nots. And so as soon as you have, as soon as you institute property, family, things like this, then obviously people are going to want property and family. Then when they want them and when they have them, they're going to protect them and defend them and take these things from other people. And this is how we end up with our society today. This was his idea. But the natural state of man and our ideal is to have no property, to have no family ties, just be a free person. And that's what he talked about. Rousseau wrote, The first man who, having fenced in a piece of land, said, This is mine, and found people naive enough to believe him. That man was the true founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling in the ditch and crying to his fellows, Beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and that it, the earth itself to nobody. He also said, Peoples once accustomed to masters are not in a condition to do without them. If they attempt to shake off the yoke, they are still more estranged themselves from freedom, as by mistaking it for an unbridled license to which it is diametrically opposed, they nearly always manage, by their revolutions, to hand themselves over to seducers, who only make their chains heavier than before. So then 1798 was Malthus, and Thomas Malthus, he wrote the essay on the principle of population. And this was very influential. This was when the British Empire was expanding and he was writing about population growth and what effect this has on society and the world and the resources. And he basically created this theory that said that there was exponential population growth, but there was arithmetical and arithmetic food supply. So the population was growing exponentially. It was just kept going and going bigger, bigger, bigger. But the food supply was only growing at a certain rate. And so at some point, the population would way exceed the food supply. And so we wouldn't be able to sustain the population on Earth, the human beings on Earth. There are too many people on Earth and we wouldn't be able to sustain that with the resources that the Earth provides. And he did not say that this was imminent, that this was about to happen, 
but that this would eventually happen and there's nothing we could do about that so long as everything stayed the way that he stated it. And so he recommended that we have population control. That was the only answer that he could come up with. He thought that family planning was a very good idea, that late marriages would be good because then they wouldn't have as many kids. Uh, Celibacy was something that he promoted because, again, you have no kids. And so this idea of population control not only being good for society for any other reason, but being necessary for society just for the survival of the human race, that you would have to do this because or else we're going to run out of our resources and everybody's going to die. So it's very important. And that's what he promoted. Malthus said, The power of population is indefinitely greater than the power in the earth to produce subsistence for man. Also, The constant effort towards population, which is found even in the most vicious societies, increases the number of people before the means of subsistence are increased. So moving ahead roughly 50 years, we have in 1848, the Communist Manifesto, and I'm sure you've heard of this one. I've discussed this one, actually, in I think the modern political theory episode, if I remember right. And this was by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, and he discussed, they discussed, a society that was based on class. And this is the society that we live in. And they say this is, a, this is every society, that society in general is always based on class. It's always a class struggle. You're always going to have the lower classes and the ruling classes. And this is the problem with society. So, of course, if you want to get rid of this problem, then you get rid of the classes. You destroy the class system. And this was their idea. And part of this would be destroying things like the family unit. We don't need that because that just causes problems. Religion causes way too many problems in society. Let's totally get rid of religion. And private property. There's that idea again. We don't want private property because that causes conflict. So let's just get rid of it completely. And once we destroy this idea of a class system, we destroy the idea of family and religion and private property then we'll be left with a utopia. We've created utopia and it's wonderful and everybody's getting along and that's our ideal. So there's the Communist Manifesto. The Manifesto says, The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. And let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. The proletariats have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. Now, moving on, 1861, you have John Stuart Mill. He wrote Utilitarianism. And this goes back to morality. And he says that morality exists apart from God. So it's not just a religious thing, but it does exist. But what he says, and it sounds familiar here, that there is an ultimate happiness principle where the most happiness for the most amount of people is the ideal. You have the greatest good for the greatest number, and that is what is moral. It's this ultimate happiness. It's the greatest good. That is how you can look at morality, but that you have to judge quality over quantity. And so basically it ends up being that Mills himself or other elites would have to be these judges because there is somebody that has to judge what is best for everyone, who is going to judge what's going to make the most amount of people happy and the most amount of people 
successful and the most flourishing society that you can create. Well, someone has to figure out what these decisions are, what they're going to be, how we're going to steer society. And in order to do this, who is best to do that? Well, it's only people that have experience and who have experience with these types of things. Well, it's not the common man. The common man has experience with his everyday labors, and that's about it, and his family, and you know, not much more. But the elite, those that are in power, those that, that are the intellectuals, those in academia, they have a lot more experience. They've been exposed to a lot more. They've learned a lot, a lot more. They have experience in ruling, in making decisions for large numbers of people, Therefore, of course, those are the elite that should judge what the quality is of these things and not just quantity issues. But the overall goal is to have the most happiness and the greatest good for all of society. And we don't really have any concept of individuals except for these elite that are making all the decisions. Mill wrote... It is indisputable that the being whose capacities of enjoyment are low has the greatest chance of having them fully satisfied, and a highly endowed being will always feel that any happiness which he can look for, as the world is constituted, is imperfect, but he can learn to bear its imperfections, if they are at all bearable, and they will not make him envy the being who is indeed unconscious of the imperfections but only because he feels not at all the good which those imperfections qualify. He also said, It is better to be a human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied, better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. And if the fool or the pig is of a different opinion, it is only because they only know their own side of the question. Then also, the creed which accepts as the foundation of morals, utility, or the greatest happiness principle, holds that actions are right in proportion as they tend to promote happiness, wrong as they tend to produce the reverse of happiness. By happiness is intended pleasure and the absence of pain. By unhappiness, pain and the privation of pleasure. The next book is, in 1871, we have... The Descent of Man, uh, subtitle Selection in Relation to Sex. And this is by Charles Darwin. This came after his other famous book, The Origins of Species, which that also has an interesting longer title. And that is On the Origins of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. That's a heck of a title. But he released that one in 1859. But the next book he came out that was very influential was this one in 1871, The Descent of Man. Because what this does is it applies the idea of natural selection and evolution to humans. And of course, this is the natural next step. And he was thinking this when he was writing The Origins of Species. But he comes out and actually talks about it in The Descent of Man. And he applies sexual selection to the species. It's not just natural selection and survival of the fittest, but he applies the idea of sexual se selection. And this is the idea of eugenics. And so he talks about how the races should be ranked. And, of course, the 
darker skinned races, the Negroes and those like them are at the very bottom. And then you have like the Irish and those and the like are barely above them. And then at the very top are basically the European white people. And of course, they're the best and the greatest and the most intellectual. And they are the elite and they are the best races. And that over time, they will dominate over all the other races and the other races will go extinct. And yeah, that's those are his ideas. But he does talk about how sympathy is harmful to man, but it's necessary. We automatically are going to be sympathetic but that it's not really a good thing. We need competition. We need struggle. If we have these crises that come up in society, that's what really brings us together and pushes along our evolution as as a race, as a whole. And so these were his ideas. Darwin writes, With savages, the weak in body or mind are soon eliminated, and those that survive commonly exhibit a vigorous state of health. We civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, the sick. We institute poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to the last moment. There is reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands, who from a weak constitution would formerly have succumbed to smallpox. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the human race. It is surprising how soon a want of care, or care wrongly directed, leads to the degeneration of a domestic race. But, excepting in the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed. He also says, Sexual selection acts in a less rigorous manner than natural selection. The latter produces its effect by the life or death at all ages of the more or less successful individuals. Now, shortly after this, in 1883, you then had Galton come out, and this is Francis Galton who was the cousin of Charles Darwin, and his book was Inquiries into Human Faculties and Its Development. And what Galton talked about was nature versus nurture. What he did is he ranked families with marks for breeding. And so families would be ranked according to, I guess, how superior they were and their breeding ratings and they would get marks and according to how many marks you had that was how high your rating was and that's how you would decide which couples should be breeding more and which should be breeding less and he yeah really goes into that he is the one that that uh, coined the term eugenics in general he was really big into statistical study as well he was actually the one that pioneered and started the questionnaire and so that was one of the techniques that he developed and used, and he wanted to apply this statistical study to society, to the human race, to everyone, and to basically guiding the human race and deciding how the race should evolve and should breed together and all this kind of stuff. So he also talked about the regression to the mean 
and that this was an issue as well. And we had to make sure that you at least had this elite group that was evolving further, just like his cousin Darwin had said, that only a few people are actually evolving in the human race, a small percentage. Well, we have to protect this percentage, make sure that they are still evolving and that they don't regress to the mean and go down like, you know, these other unfavored races that are basically the dregs of humanity, according to them. And so that was what he believed. Galton says, The publication in 1859 of The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin made a marked epoch on my own mental development, as it did in that of human thought generally. Its effect was to demolish a multitude of dogmatic barriers by a single stroke, and to arouse a spirit of rebellion against all ancient authorities whose positive and unauthenticated statements were contradicted by modern science. He also says, I have no patience with the hypothesis occasionally expressed and often implied, especially in tales written to teach children to be good, that babies are born pretty much alike. Arid that sole agencies in creating differences between boy and boy and man and man are steady application and moral effort. It is in the most unqualified manner that I object to pretensions of natural equality. The experience of the nursery, the school, the university, and of professional careers are a chain of proofs to the contrary. I acknowledge freely the great power of education and social influences in developing the active powers of the mind, just as I acknowledge the effect of use in developing the muscles of a blacksmith's arm, and no further. Let the blacksmith labor as he will. He will find there are certain feats beyond his power that are well within the strength of a man of Herculean make, even though the latter may have led a sedentary life. I have already spoken in Hereditary Genius of the large effects of religious persecution in comparatively recent years on the natural character of races, and shall not say more about it here, But it must not be omitted from the list of steady influences continuing through ancient historical times down, in some degree to the present day, in destroying the self-reliant and therefore the nobler races of men. A really intelligent nation might be held together by far stronger forces than are derived from the purely gregarious instincts. A nation need not be a mob of slaves clinging to one another through fear and for the most part incapable of self-government and begging to be led, but it might consist of vigorous self-reliant men knit to one another by innumerable ties into a strong, tense, and elastic organization. Shortly after him was Frederick Nietzsche, and Nietzsche is a name you should have heard before. His book Beyond Good and Evil was very influential. He was very influential, period. He was the one that said, God is dead, we have killed him. And if you've heard that phrase before, that was Nietzsche. What he said was that aristocracies were best, where you had these ruling elite groups that were running society, and that really is the ideal, because that way you have people that are in a position that they are the elite, and they know what they're doing, and they're the ones that know how to run society. He also talks about how suffering creates greatness. That's an idea we've heard before, that we just need another crisis, and that that's what really brings out the best and kind of pushes and forces the race and the society to move forward and to advance. He talked about focusing 
not on survival, but on flourishing and cultivating. And that's what we should do. It's not just about continuing and moving on the way we've always been moving on and society just moving along. You have kids, you have family, you live your good life and then you die and then your kids do the same thing. No, that it's all about flourishing and cultivating and making society better and bigger and more prosperous and that this is what we should be driving towards. He says that our driving instinct as humanity and as humans is our will to power, and that is power over others and over other things, and that's what drives us as human beings. He has this aristocratic mentality of success that he pits against the slave morality of just getting by. So it's this idea of survival versus flourishing. You have the aristocracy that's all about flourishing and gaining wealth, and that that is the aristocratic morality, which is good, and that leads to a successful society. But then you have the slave morality, the just getting by, the just survival, and that that is bad for society, and society will not progress very much. He also talks about the Ubermensch, the Superman, and you would hear that later by the Nazi party, and that this Superman would rule over the slave class. So, of course, you have the elite that are ruling over the slaves and over the common masses, and they are the ones with the slave mentalities of just getting by and moving along with their families, and that's all they're worried about. But you have these Ubermensch, the supermen, that are going to be the aristocratic people, the aristocracy, the elite that are running things and actually progressing society. And we insinuate here that since suffering creates greatness, these elite will institute suffering among the masses, and that's what they will use as catalysts to move society forward. And this is a good thing. So Nietzsche wrote, It is the business of the very few to be independent. It is a privilege of the strong, and whoever attempts it, even with the best right, without being obliged to do so, proves that he is probably not only strong, but also daring beyond measure. He also says, Love of one is a piece of barbarism, for it is practiced at the expense of all others. Love of God, likewise. Moving forward, we finally get into the 1900s, and 1922, we have The Pivot of Civilization by Margaret Sanger. And now we're getting into people you might recognize here a little more. This is getting into more modern history, because Margaret Sanger is the one that started the American Birth Control League that later became known as Planned Parenthood. So that is a common name. And we see that in this book, she talks about how the feeble-minded, as she puts it, are breeding too much, and they lead to more crime, and that, of course, this is a bad thing for society. We do not want crime, so we need to stop these feeble-minded people from continuing to breed and producing these criminals. She says that some can be steered kind of like helpful sheep. And they can be steered along the way you want them to go, but obviously you don't want them to breed too much and have too many feeble-minded people, but at least they are easy to steer. They're like sheep. Um, Intelligence is a rating factor. So if you're talking about who is superior and who is feeble-minded, it's all about intelligence. And that is what determines value in her mind. So those that are not very intelligent, these feeble-minded, are not very valuable. Who really cares about them? 
But the intelligent people, yeah, those are the ones we really need to focus on and take care of. She talks about segregating and sterilizing groups of people, ideally these feeble-minded people and feeble races. Yes, she was a major racist. She spoke at many KKK rallies and things like that. So her idea was you segregate certain groups of people, probably blacks, and maybe she's against the Irish as well, who knows, and you segregate these people that are more feeble-minded. It's also criminals, people that have proven that they are the dregs of society and truly feeble-minded. And you forcefully sterilize them so that they cannot breed and cannot continue this trend in society through their children and pass it on genetically. And that in addition to this, we should deny parenthood to certain people like these that should not have kids because we don't want them to breed these stupid feeble-minded people that are ruining society we should also institute sex ed sexual education among children and teach them about some of these things and you'll probably teach the elite people about procreating and you'll probably teach the feeble-minded about how to not create children when you participate in procreating activity. And so that's one way of doing it. The other way is birth control. And if we use birth control properly and specifically and in a targeted manner, as well as this education and sterilization and segregation, you add birth control to the mix and you can really make an impact on keeping these feeble-minded people from breeding too much and ruining society. So that was Margaret Sanger. Sanger says, We want fewer and better children who can be reared up to their full possibilities in unencumbered homes, and we cannot make the social life and the world peace we are determined to make with the ill-bred, ill-trained swarms of inferior citizens that you inflict upon us. She later writes, The lack of balance between the birth rate of the unfit and the fit admittedly the greatest present menace to the civilization, can never be rectified by the inauguration of a cradle competition between these two classes. The example of the inferior classes, the fertility of the feeble-minded, the mentally defective, the poverty-stricken, should not be held up for emulation to the mentally and physically fit, and therefore less fertile, parents of the educated and well-to-do classes. On the contrary, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective. Now, a few years later, 1927, you have Sigmund Freud, Freud, one of the most famous of his lot. And the book that I am referring to here is The Future of an Illusion. And this is all about destroying religion, pretty much. Religion is just an illusion. It's sprung from our inner driving desires. We naturally have a desire to answer these questions and to have someone more powerful watching over everything. That a child, this is where it all comes from, and this is very interesting, that it stems from the idea that a child needs protection. So when we're children, we need to be protected, and that equals the mother. The mother is the one that protects us in the womb, and as we're babies, she's the one that nurses us, takes care of us. But as we start to grow and become children, older children, that protection then moves to the father, and the father is taking care of us and protecting us. And so that's the idea there, and those are our parents. Well, as you start hitting pu puberty, then sex is something that comes up, and that's a need and a desire. Well, of course, 
the only person to look to, the only other person around is the mother. But you have your father in the way because he's the one that's having sex with your mother. So what you have to do is that child is then forced by his inner instinct to kill his father and eat him for his strength so he can gain his strengths and his privileges and then he can protect himself and take care of himself and satisfy his sexual desires with his mother and that somehow this is the natural state of man we've talked about the natural state of man many times well according to freud this is the natural state of man this is what it all boils down to and out of this comes all religion that we have the father figures we have child sacrifice we have cannibalism and all this kind of stuff that all stems from these subconscious ideas and the human psyche that relate back to this original state of man and basically that there's this and religion is all fake and made up and is not true whatsoever so therefore the morality of religion is not true and on and on Freud says, religious doctrines are all illusions. They do not admit of proof, and no one can be compelled to consider them as true or to believe in them. He also says, perhaps the hopes I have confessed, too, are of an illusory nature, too. But I hold fast to my one distinction. Apart from the fact that no penalty is imposed for not sharing them, my illusions are not, like religious ones, incapable of correction. Now, moving forward one year later is Margaret Mead. Very different subject here. She wrote the book of Coming of Age in Samoa. And what she tried to do is to find man in a primitive society and that that would be much closer to the ideal kind of natural state of man. It seems like a trend here. Everybody's looking for what is the natural state of man. And usually it's a positive thing that we want to get back to. And sometimes it's very negative like Freud. But what she did is she went to Samoa and she wrote a book about what she saw there. She saw that there was open parenting and kids would just be passed along. If they didn't get along with their mother, they'd move in with their aunt and they'd take care of them or they'd move in with another family member and move around. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's an open parenting style. You also have open sex lives where they can have relations with one another. It doesn't mean anything and they can have relations with many other people or one other person. It really doesn't matter. We can just do whatever we want. It can be with men. It can be with women. You know, who cares? It's all a very open sexual society as well. And with all this, you have a large degree of tolerance. And so there is not a lot of bigotry or problems or conflict that are coming up here because it's a very open society. She talks about teaching kids how to think and not what to think. And that, of course, we teach them about being tolerant and being open. And that's what you teach them about how you should think. You don't teach them what to think. You don't teach them about absolute truth or set morality because that's not what we want to do. We want to teach them to just be very open and very tolerant. And that's ideal. Um, and this is what she said she was witnessing in Samoa, that they had no religion, that they also had no morals. There was no role for the family. And this was a good thing. They were very happy. There's no conflict. She said that society needs sexual saturation, where it needs to be very commonplace, very casual, it needs to be stress-free, and the only standard 
is not to disagree with another person's standards. And again, it's just we have to be open and tolerant. Well, it later came out that the society she went to, according to pretty much every other report, was not exactly the way she described it at all, and that she was just picking and choosing certain things and trying to get an agenda and an ideology out there and blah, blah, blah. But it was still a very influential book, and it talked about all these ideas, and this is, of course, what we need to do with our society today. And, yeah, basically no morality, no religion, lots of sexual activity with anybody, and very open society. Mead wrote, It is an open question whether any behavior based on fear of eternal punishment can be regarded as ethical or should be regarded as merely cowardly. Also, If the future is to remain open and free, we need people who can tolerate the unknown, who will not need the support of completely worked out systems or traditional blueprints from the past. Then also, young people are moving away from feeling guilty about sleeping with somebody to feeling guilty if they are not sleeping with someone. Now, 20 years later, we have another book on sexual behavior called Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. And this is by Alfred Kinsey. Now, what he discussed was that there was no such thing as normal or abnormal when it comes to sexual behavior. There are no no morals in science. Scientific things are not moral things or ethical things. It's a totally different subject. And so it's not what should be, but it's what is. And that is what science is. And he's looking at sexual behavior from a scientific perspective. Therefore, of course, there are no morals. Now, what he says is that when we look in at the animal kingdom, we see animals act with no sexual inhibitions oftentimes, and this includes having relations from one species to another species, like bestiality. We see homosexuality that occurs in multiple species among animals in the animal kingdom, and Basically, we are part of the animal kingdom. We are just another member of it as human beings. And so if we see that this behavior is happening in the animal kingdom, and then we know that it's happened throughout history as well as currently, that bestiality is a thing, that homosexuality is a thing, that bondage and pain and suffering in a sexual manner is a thing, And so since these things happen in the natural world, in the animal kingdom, and they have happened in the human world, in human beings, then if we look at this from a scientific view, from his point, there is no morality, then all this stuff is normal. There's no normal and abnormal. All this stuff is normal. All this stuff's okay. There is nothing sexual that is bad. Everything's okay, and everything's just a different person's views, and it's all natural. Well, it also later came out with Alfred Kinsey that he was into, of course, bestiality and pedophilia and all kinds of horrible things. And some of his experiments were very horrible. I would actually suggest not looking into his experiments. But the point is, it's, again, this idea of being very open with things of this nature and getting rid of morality. We don't need morality. Kinsey wrote, Males do not represent two discrete populations, heterosexual and homosexual. The world is not to be divided into sheep and goats, and not all things are black, nor all things white. It is a fundamental of 
taxonomy that nature rarely deals with discrete categories. Only the human mind invents categories and tries to force facts into separated pigeonholes. The living world is a continuum in each and every one of its aspects. The sooner we learn this concerning human sexual behavior, the sooner we shall reach a sound understanding of the realities of sex. He also wrote, The very general occurrence of the homosexual in ancient Greece and its wide occurrence today in some cultures in which such activity is not taboo suggests that the capacity of an individual to respond erotically to any sort of stimulus, whether it is provided by another person of the same or opposite sex, is basic in the species. Now, the next book is The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, and this was in 1963. Now, what she talked about was that housewives live pointless and unfulfilling lives, and that she went around and studied all these different housewives, went all over the country, talked to all these women, couldn't find a single one that was satisfied with their lives. And this is in a time, 1963, where you're coming out of this ideal where the mother stays at home and is a homemaker and they're supposed to be happy and everything's going well and these happy little families. Well, she says she goes around and they're all miserable that the women lay down in their beds at night and just think, is this all? Is there nothing else? And that they're just miserable, they're depressed, they're on drugs, all this different stuff because they can't cope. And so this is bad, of course. And what she believes is that the government should raise people's children and that that would kind of solve an issue there because if the mother doesn't have to raise her own children, then the women can actually get out in the workforce and actually do something with their lives and they could be more. And there's all this discrimination in the workforce. What we need to do is get women in the workforce. So when the government is raising their children, then the government can also pay for women to get an education in a certain field. And then the women can get into the workforce. They can compete. They can get rid of this bigotry by men and the sexist behavior. And that that's what we need to do for society because all these women are so oppressed and so miserable and so depressed. And she believed that Abortion was absolutely necessary for a feminine revolution and that you will not get true rights for women unless they are allowed to have abortions of their unborn children. And that also, you know, solves the problem of having children, then having to raise those children, being tied down and sucked into this miserable existence. Well, it turned out that a lot of her studies were not very scientific, she was very selective, and that was not really the mood of most housewives at the time, but it was the mood of some. I mean, that is true that there are some women that acted this way and thought this way and had these problems. They did exist, without a doubt, but this made it mainstream, and this idea kind of went viral before you had the term going viral, and so again, it's another ideology that really had a big effect on society. Friedman says, each suburban wife struggles with it alone, as she made the beds, shopped for groceries, matched slipcover material, ate peanut butter sandwiches with her children, chauffeured Cub Scouts and brownies, lay beside her husband at night. She was afraid to ask even of herself the silent question, is this all? She also writes, The feminist had destroyed the old image of woman but they could not erase the hostility, the prejudice, and the discrimination that still remained. She also writes, 
Women who adjust as housewives, who grow up wanting to be just a housewife, are in as much danger as the millions who walked their, to their own death in the concentration camps. They ate suffering a slow death of mind and spirit. So, to wrap all this up, where does this leave us? What ideas have we seen here? Well, we have seen the idea that the elite should rule the world and that that's what would be best for society. We see that there is nothing morally wrong with this because what is morality? Either it doesn't exist or all it is is pleasure and pain or the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And so no matter how you look at it, the right thing to do, the moral thing to do would be for the elite to rule the world. And we see the idea of justified sinning that from a religious aspect with John Calvin, that no matter what you do, you're either elect or you're not. So doesn't really matter whether you're sinning or not sinning because you're either elect or you're not. And then you look at it from a more practical view with Malthus that we have this issue where there's too many people and not enough resources. So you are justified in controlling the population and manipulating society because or else we're not going to have enough resources. There's not enough food. There's nothing we can do about that. You have the idea scientifically from Darwin that only a small percentage of the human race is actually evolving at all. So the just thing to do is to basically subject the lower aspects of the human race, those lower races. You try to keep them from breeding. You keep them segregated. You wipe them out, whatever you need to do. And it's for the greater good of the human race. It's, it's justified, definitely. And his cousin Galton was not much better. You do this very scientifically and you practice eugenics in order to make it happen where you make sure that the elite are breeding really well and that they are the ones in control and the masses. You try to control their population and keep them from breeding too much, especially the dregs of society and the lesser races. And that's kind of the idea there. So that's the justified sinning mentality. We've got the elite ruled world mentality. We've basically got this whole idea that a certain class of people that are better than everyone else and smarter than everyone else and have more money and power than everybody else are in that position for the purpose of steering society and molding society and making sure society is going down the most flourishing road and not devolving into what the masses would bring society into, those those horrible and wretched masses that are unintelligent and feeble-minded and of these feeble races that aren't really even capable of much. No matter how much you teach them, they're only capable of what they're born with, and that's not much. So what we need to do is make sure that we control marriages, we control birth rates, we use birth control, we use abortion, we use sterilization, we use segregation, we use all these different things. We use wars. We use conflicts. And all these things are used to steer society, to manipulate the human race as a whole. This is all very big picture stuff. This is you are looking at the chessboard and you pan out and you see that there are actually like 
10 different chess games going on in the room. And when you pan out to that level, then you can really see what's going on here. That if you get this guy to lose a match over on the right side of the room and this other guy in the middle of the room to lose a match, then in the next round, let's say this is a tournament and you're trying to get a certain person to, to win the whole thing. Well, you make certain people win, you make certain people lose, and it's not necessarily about each individual move, nor is it about each individual game, but it's about making sure that the tournament goes in such a way that one of your people wins in the end. And how do you do that? Well, you do control some of the moves, and you may control some of the games and some of the people, but really all you need is a little bit of a guiding hand, a little bit of influence, a little bit of leverage on some of these actions and some of these decisions and you might be able to control the whole tournament, this whole chess tournament, and figure out who wins or determine who wins. And that's what the elite are basically trying to do by, according to these ideologies at least, that's what the elite should do, that they should look at society and the human race as a whole from a very big picture point of view, and that they should use these different things Things, these different tools in their toolbox, things like eugenics and education and intellect and different things like this, and they use it. They use things like the sexual revolution and the feminist movement and just all these different things. They're tools. It's abortion. It's vaccinations. It's health care. It's wars and conflicts and taxes and it doesn't matter what it is they are all extremely useful and you don't need to control everything and we'll get into this in some future episodes but it's all about leverage it's not that you have these masses of elites all around the world that are actually pulling all the different strings and control all the different players and they manipulate every head of state throughout the whole world no all they need is a little bit of leverage in some specific key areas, and then they can get what they want, because that's all they need. They just need nudges. They just need the bumpers up at the bowling alley, where instead of the ball being able to go in the gutter, it kind of just grazes off the bumper, bounces off, and then, hey, you probably make a strike. You hit the pins. Everything's good. What difference did you make? Just this tiny little bump of the ball on the side of the bowling alley. And so that's the idea here, is that you just you steer, you control, and this is actually the moral thing to do. You're justified in this sinning, some may call it, this unethical behavior according to others, but you know, there's really that doesn't really exist. And in order to make sure that it doesn't exist, we must make sure that we get rid of religion. And in order to make sure that society does what we want it to, and this is a very open and accepting society and they're easier to steer, let's get rid of family too. And what's the biggest influence on society as a whole? And how are we going to make sure that we get them to go along with our views? Well, we'll use education. That's a great idea. And so you see all these things come up. And this isn't anything new. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this all is in Plato's Republic. Pretty much every single one of the things I just mentioned, not only is it in it, it's actually even more explicit in the Republic than it is in some of these other works. And so that's really interesting. I'll do a whole episode on that at some point, and that should be very interesting. But the idea is just that these are ideologies and these are concepts that 
have had a huge influence on the most influential people in society, on the elite groups, on the academia, the academics, and in the top-notch universities and political leaders, uh, just all these different people that are actually reading these types of works, reading philosophy and reading scientific books and books on society and these types of things. The people that read these are typically the elite in some form or fashion, whether it be intellectually or with their wealth or with their power or their position. These are the types of people that read these types of books. Now, that doesn't mean that you, a normal person, assuming you're a normal person, uh, will not read any of these works. That You might, and that does happen. There are normal people that read all these books I just listed, but you have many more, a much greater percentage of those in higher positions that are going to be much more likely to study these works and works like them and ideas like them much more and to a much greater extent and much more commonly than the rest of us normally probably would. The rest of us don't really have much of a motivation to. We have, as one of the authors would say, more of a slave mentality that we just go about our jobs where we're wage slaves, where we just give enough labor to make enough money, to buy enough food, to have a house over our head and buy some materialistic things and feel good about it. And then we can support our family. We go on about the day. We can't wait till the weekend. We watch our sports and we're entertained. We watch Netflix every night and surf the web on our phones anytime we have an inkling of maybe being bored. Our kids complain. We have them hand them a tablet or turn on the TV and we just go on about our lives. And that's all we really care about. And that's the idea of the masses from this elite perspective is that they are just the masses. They're just going about this slave mentality of just surviving and just getting by and having a happy little life. And that's it. Well, this is not the idea of the elite. They are going well beyond this. They are actually digging into a lot of these concepts, these ideas, figuring out what these levers are, how they can control things, how they can gain more power, how they sidestep other players. And it's just very, very interesting. As we get into the next few episodes, this will become much more apparent. And so this should be fairly helpful because you'll be coming into those next few episodes with this as your backdrop that these ideas are fairly commonplace amongst very popular names, names that you know. I'm sure you've heard of some of these authors, probably most of them, I should say. People like Calvin and Freud and you know all these people that I'm sure you've heard of before, Plato, but you probably haven't studied all of these all that much. But the point is that they exist, their ideologies and their ideas exist, they had a big influence on the types of people we're going to be talking about in our next few episodes, and this is the background and the backdrop for both our previous three episodes on kind of what's wrong with the current state of society in government and money and economics and in education. This is the idea and the ideology that basically created what we have now. This is also the ideology that is behind the corruption and conspiracy that we're going to talk about in our next few episodes. 
And so this is a very good kind of wrap up of the themes of the previous three and introduce the themes of the next few episodes. And so I hope that this has been beneficial for you. So that's all I have. Please remember that we do have a t-shirt drive going on. I will be ordering those t-shirts soon. And so all you need to do is basically interact with the podcast somehow and send me an email. That is it. I made it simpler than when I first announced the t-shirt contest because apparently it was too difficult. You actually had multiple things you had to do and people don't want to do multiple things. So now pretty much just do whatever you want. Just some way interact either maybe retweet an episode announcement or give me some feedback or opinions or suggestions or leave a rating and review on iTunes or your podcast player or who knows what, make something up. I don't care. Do something that interacts with the podcast and then email me so I can have your name and put you in the contest. And that's it. There are not very many people that have entered, so you have a pretty good chance. I will tell you that. I cannot guarantee that you'll get a t-shirt, but it is actually more likely than not that you will if you do submit your name. So, please do that. The details should be in the show notes. Also, as a side note, I realized that a few episodes ago, I had released multiple episodes with no show notes, um, at least no links in the show notes. It had the brief description, but none of the links to the website or the Patreon page or anything else. And so I apologize for that. I have edited that and corrected that. So now every episode should have all the links there, including this one. So you should be able to Find our email address, which is ourfoundations at protonmail.com, the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash ourfoundations, and that's where I have posts and exclusive episodes. I actually just released an episode on a voluntary government, the model for a voluntary government. So um, it's the end of a trilogy where basically we bashed government for being immoral and ineffective and inefficient, and so I had to produce a solution, an alternative, and is it possible to have a voluntary government that is moral and effective and efficient? And what would that look like? And what are some examples and some objections? And well, that's the episode I just released. But uh, anyway, there, there are links to all these different things. And please look at them. Look at the website. I've updated it recently with the outline for our next episode, basically the whole season one. I updated the Patreon page. There's a post on there that everybody can see for season two ideas so please look at that give us some comments on what you want for the next season i have a few ideas of how to structure it and they are posted there but that's not exclusive you may have some different ideas share them with me that'd be great and that's all for now so thank you very much for those who are supporting on patreon and giving your money thank you very much for those who are supporting by recommending this podcast to other people and who are leaving reviews and ratings those are extremely helpful thank you very much for that and thank you for listening i appreciate it i appreciate your time i hope that it is valuable to you that you are learning something that you are engaging intellectually with some of these ideas and it stirs things in your mind hopefully it is something that is just beneficial or interesting or entertaining or educational or something i'm just hoping to get something out of it if you listen this long i'm sure you have and so thank you very much for your support of all kinds thank you for listening thank you very much 
I am out of here. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.